the context in which we are beginning this morning uh, is, a, is going from a place where the end of, of chapter 2, we see the church finding favor with all people, going from that position to a place where they're starting to face opposition, they're starting to face persecution. And in, in facing those things, I think it's natural for all of us here in the United States to go, well, boy, I, I, we would want to avoid those things. Uh, we'd want to stay away from those things. And it remind, I'm reminded, I don't, I don't, can we turn this down a little bit? I think I'm getting a lot of feet. Maybe just turn this off, and then that'll probably solve it. The main mic. That is off. This is off? Just turn this down a little bit. We're reminded, uh, I'm reminded of a, a friend of mine who lives in Uganda, actually. He's an Anglican uh, pastor, and his, uh, um, his name is Stephen. And we were meeting together when I was on a trip there. And I asked him, he actually experienced sometimes ministering in, in Baltimore, Maryland. And so he's very familiar with the differences between uh, American and African culture. And I just asked him, I said, Reverend Stephen, can, could you tell me uh, your thoughts on, the, on what are some of the key differences between uh, the American culture and the African culture? And right away he said, yes, Todd. He said, he said this, in America, comfort is a culture. In Africa, comfort is a luxury. In America, you have a right to be comfortable. You expect to have a right to be comfortable. In Africa, we don't, we don't think about that right. We don't think of it in that way. And it also reminds me of another phrase of, uh, I don't remember who said this, um, but I remember hearing, in America, suffering is an abnormality to be avoided. In the rest of the world, suffering is a reality to be endured. And so as we go to, uh, to read these two chapters, um, we need to, to recognize that our own natural upbringing as Americans would have us look at what is occurring here in a different way than this early church in the book of Acts. And we want to make sure that we're shaped this morning not by the culture that we grew up in, but that we're shaped this morning by God's word, that, that we would let the God's word shape our thinking and how we would approach opposition and the advancement of the gospel and not let our American culture read back in something that is not really the way things ought to be in God's kingdom. So with that in mind, let's read this huge chunk of scripture. I don't know how Matt Terhune scored like eight verses and I score two chapters. I'm going to talk to Sandy about that when he gets back. Um, but these are, this is an amazing, amazing story. So it'll be very fun uh, to read this and look at this. Acts chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a lame man from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but, whatever, but what I do have, excuse me, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. 
And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us, as though by our own power or pity we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has, this man, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for the restoring of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in, your off and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And when they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men that came, that came to, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the peoples and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. 
And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. So they called them, and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether, is it right, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. Because of all the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they, re- when they were released, they went to their friends and reported to the chief priests and the elders what, ha- what the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the, nation- Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves... And the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at these two chapters this morning from your word, we would pray that by your Holy Spirit, You would grant to us the ability to understand these events and these words as they were first understood by those who were there. And knowing that, may your Holy Spirit grant to us the ability to apply these things to our lives that we might be shaped by your word this morning so that you would be known and glorified in this city. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, What I've done with this huge chunk of scripture is taken and divided it up into four sections, as you see there in your notes. And the four sections, the first section is entitled, The Gospel Will Be Exposed. And what I've done is I've I've looked and seen how the gospel message, the the faith, the the message, the, uh, the life of these followers of Jesus has gone from this position of finding favor with all men to facing this opposition and how this has gone through each of these stages. So when I'm talking about the, the gospel being exposed, I'm really talking about the gospel message or, or the gospel life being exposed. And we see that taking place here in these first 10 verses of chapter 3 because we see that uh, Peter and John are going through their normal life, their normal day. They're going up at 3 p.m. to the temple to pray And as they're going up in their normal life, in their normal day, this new life that they have in Jesus cannot be contained. They're different men. 
And as a result, they're, they're walking up there, and we see right away in verses 1 through 6 that this new mission cannot be avoided. This new mission cannot be avoided. As they're walking past this, this guy who from birth has been crippled and is in a place where a lot of, uh, of uh, crippled people, lame people, would beg for alms right there at the gate of the temple. And apparently he's been there for, for years and years and years because we find out later that he's 40 years old. As he's been there for years and years and years, um, Peter and John are walking by him. And they now, with this new life, with, with what Christ has given them, this new mission that they have, that cannot be avoided, they see this guy and they see him in a different way. And it says that they fix their gaze upon him. Verse 4 says they fix their gaze upon him. See, because they no longer see people the way they used to see people. They used to just be fishermen, but Jesus said to him, I'm going to make you fishers of men. It reminds, it reminds us of what's said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We know verse 17. Verse 17, it says, therefore, if we are in Christ... We are new creations. The old is gone. The new has come. But in that section of Scripture, in verse 16, Paul says this. Now that I have Christ, I no longer look at people from a worldly point of view. I'm no longer looking through eyes of someone who just sees people as part of a, a culture or a part of an economy. I'm not just looking at them as, as a consumer. What can I get from that person? I now have new eyes to see them. And so I no longer look at people. I no longer look at anybody from a worldly point of view. That's what's taking place here with Peter and John. They no longer look at people from a worldly point of view. The new mission of the gospel cannot be avoided in their lives. And they go ahead and by the power of God, they, they heal this guy who's been lame since birth. And I just want to point out something that I think is, is fascinating. This is just a few weeks after the resurrection of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus, that this is taking place. Jesus went to the temple all the time. Jesus healed people. He couldn't heal everybody, but he healed people. Jesus went to the temple all the time. This guy has been there for decades. This, this means this guy most likely was there when Jesus went into the temple. Isn't it interesting that it's obvious that Jesus left this miracle to be done by these men. Jesus had a plan. Jesus had a plan for why he didn't heal this guy that he walked by. Because there was a, this guy was part of Jesus' redemptive story, but it was, a, it was a part that was down the road. It was coming. Healing for this man was coming, and, and Jesus knew that as he walked by him. So this man is, is healed, and, and let's just point out, I know in the, in the Stott commentary, um, that there's a section that talks about miracles at the end and, and the, the normality or the abnormality of miracles. And, and let me just say that I think uh, certainly that God is God and he can do whatever he wants and he can perform any miracle he wants at any time. And certainly what we, what we hear from places like India and China where the gospel is advancing in, in ways that are miraculous, we also see miraculous signs being performed because they don't have the scriptures there. There's millions and millions of people who don't have access to the word of God. And so to affirm the message that's being proclaimed, I believe God is working miracles. That's what's taking place in the book of Acts. And I really think these miraculous signs that, are, that you see in scripture and even in life, they're, they're not a normal part of our experience. They're meant to affirm the message. They're meant to affirm the message 
And, uh, and so that's what's taking place here in the book of Acts. These miracles are affirming this new revelation from God as the church, the church is growing. So they heal this guy, and this guy gets up, and he starts jumping around because he's experienced Jesus. And so we see, secondly, under this first, under this first point of the gospel we exposed, that this new joy cannot be contained. You see in verses eight, 7 and 8 that this new joy cannot be contained. If you were here uh, in, back in August, I preached on a Sunday night, beginning uh, in the first few verses of First Peter. And I talked about an experience that I had uh, in Argentina back in the early part of August. I was down in Buenos Aires. We were at this church, and this woman walks up, this, this beautiful woman. She was probably uh, 60, 65 years old, and, and her, the countenance of her face was just astounding. And uh, we, it was right after a church service there, and she intentionally came up to meet us, and, uh, and she was just overwhelmed with joy. And it turns out that this woman had been one of the top uh, models, uh, fashion models in uh, South America and even in Europe back in the 60s and 70s, and um, that she had had this amazing life, just, um, you know, this, just the, the popularity, the, uh, the money, all of that, but her life had been completely empty until she had found Christ just three years, three years ago. And as she's talking with us, and just meeting us, she can't help but share what happened. Now, this happened three years ago, but she's saying that. And at one point, she just looked at me, and she goes, I've got to tell you, Jesus saved my life. And I'll never forget that moment, because I was, I was just blown away by her, by her joy. Her joy couldn't be contained. Uh, she had experienced Jesus, this new life, and she just had to tell people, even as we were all in church, we were all Christians, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. He saved my life. And that's what's taking place with this man. It, this new joy can't be contained. And then we see verses 9 and 10. This new life cannot be hidden. Because this guy's jumping and leaping around. He's following Peter and James, I mean James and John as they walk into the temple. And as they go into the temple and he's jumping around and all this is going on, people are going, wait a second, isn't that the guy who, who was giving alms there? Well, you know, what's, what's going on there? And it says, all the people saw. They saw this. Now, as I was studying this this week, I thought to myself, man, what are, what are people seeing in us? As you think about the gospel life being exposed, it's going to be exposed. What, what are people around me being exposed to as a result of the gospel in my life? What are my kids? What are your kids? What are your grandkids? What are your coworkers being exposed to in, in, because you're around them? Because the gospel life, the gospel message is going to be exposed, we see in these first 10 verses. Well, second uh, section of chapter, of chapter 3, carrying us from verses 11 through the end of the chapter, I entitled this, The Gospel Will Offend. The Gospel Will Offend. The context here is that the, the crowds have started to gather. They're, they're following around Peter, and Peter realizes, you know what? This is an incredible opportunity. I'm here in the temple. All these, this miracle is performed. This guy's joy can't, can't be contained. You know what? All these people are around us. It's time to preach. <laughs> and so Peter, Peter begins this amazing sermon, gathering the people together. And, uh, and his, his first point right away is this. Hey, this isn't about us. This isn't about this guy. This is about Jesus. 
And right away, he takes this event, that the, the power that has come from, from Christ through them into this guy to heal them, this miraculous sign, and he immediately shifts it to Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you what's behind this. Let me tell you what's going on here. And so the first thing we see, uh, point A, is this, the supremacy of Christ excludes all other beliefs. We're going to see that in this sermon. The supremacy of Christ excludes all other beliefs. This is, this is important for us to see because the opposition that's going to occur uh, just in the next chapter and that's going to lead to persecution later really comes from this message that is inherently offensive. The message of the gospel is inherently offensive to sinners, though it's ultimately the good news. Christ's supremacy excludes all other beliefs. I think even that statement could, could, could make us feel uncomfortable here. But it's a reality. And as, and as Peter begins to preach, he starts by, by letting them know, hey, listen, Christ is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament here. He says, hey, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God, I mean, he, he, just, he just labels for, the, for those Jewish uh, people, he just labels, you know, the big dogs and says, hey, listen, all of these men, this, this, this whole Old Testament, your scriptures, they all point to Jesus. This isn't about, you know, a rabbi who had some good teachings. No, everything that you've known all centers around Jesus. This all points to Jesus. That right away is offensive. Now, what was especially offensive to the Sadducees, that group of, of religious leaders, was that they did not believe in a resurrection. They did not believe in the resurrection from the dead. And so they were not okay with, with, uh, with Peter and John preaching the resurrection of a Christ, it says later on in uh, chapter 4. Um, and then Peter goes on in this, in this sermon, and he says, you, you have denied the holy and righteous one, the one and only. Holy means set apart. Righteous one denotes there's no other righteous like Jesus. This wasn't like one God among many. This is saying, hey, this is the only one there. Then he goes on, he says, it's the author of life. You've killed the author of life. This is Jesus who's the creator. He actually is God. He is the one and only, and later on when they're before the Sadducees and the rulers, Peter, in, in his explanation of what went on, says to, says to all of them in chapter 4, verse 12, there's no other name. There is no other name by which you must be saved. No other name. And let's be honest, brothers, in, in, our, in our culture here in America, that, that's, that's a real rub right now. That right there is, is offensive to say that there is no other way but Jesus. But God's word tells us there is no other way but Jesus. You know, the controversy of that is already starting to, to be stirred up in the presidential elections with the whole, with the whole issue between uh, Mitt Romney as a Mormon and the head of the Southern Baptist Convention and all that's going on there. And we may disagree about how that came out. I mean, how it's, how it's in the public forum. And we may have, have wanted, uh, preferred that would have been addressed in a different way. But regardless of how we think it should have come out publicly, 
the reality is that what's being said is true. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved than Jesus. And that's offensive. The supremacy of Christ is going to exclude all other beliefs. The second thing we see in this sermon is that we are not being called to believe. We are being called to repent. We're not being called to believe. We are being called to repent. If you look at the sermons, this is fascinating. If you look at the sermons in the book of Acts, the sermons in Acts chapter 2, and then this sermon right here in Acts chapter 3, and then you think, I think it's Acts chapter 16, when Paul is speaking at the Areopagus in Athens. The end of the sermon is not a call to new belief. It's always a call to repentance. The real issue of those that don't know Jesus isn't that they need to believe more or believe differently. The real issue is that we need to repent from our sins. We need to turn from our sins. And of course, that right there is offensive. We'd prefer, we'd prefer to talk to our friends about, about changing their beliefs. But the reality is that the gospel is calling us not simply to believe, but to repent. The connection to the Old Testament that is made here in the end of, of this section is also fascinating because it reminds us, and I know you all studied, I guess it was Deuteronomy was, was last year, so you, you studied the law. It reminds us, what Peter uh, is reminding them is, hey, all the prophets, all the things that were given before were just showing you your need for a Savior. And I'm sure Sandy talked about that, that what you experience in the law of God in Deuteronomy is an understanding that you could never fulfill the law of God. We could never live up to that. And so it just reveals to us our desperate need of a Savior. And so revealing for us this desperate need of a Savior is something that, that Peter wants to make a connection to. You're going to need a Savior. And the prophets knew that they, they, they were pointing to, the prophets were pointing to a Savior. You recognize that you couldn't do it, that it wasn't working the way you went about it. And so God sent these prophets, and he, he told you, he reminded you through these prophets, I'm going to send you a Savior, and this Savior is Jesus. He is the one and only, the supremacy of Christ all over again. And then look what it says in verse 26. Verse 26, when it's talking about the blessing, it says, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you. And how the, what was the blessing? I love this. The blessing was that every one of you would turn from your wickedness. The blessing was obedience. It goes right back to the whole idea that we're not being called to belief, we're being called to repentance. The blessing of God is that we would be able to turn from our wickedness. It's God's grace in our lives that allows us to not sin at certain points, to resist temptation, to know what our sin is, to repent from it, and to move forward. That's God's grace in our lives. That's not, that's not necessarily legalism or moralism. It is when we start to think that we, we can find favor with God by our, be, by our behavior. Instead of recognizing that we find favor with God simply because of what Christ has done. But in knowing that we are, we are sure in our position because of what Christ has done. And we're free in our position because of what Christ has done. And that our behavior cannot change that position. Knowing that, we have the grace of God to go out and live obedient lives. 
That's the blessing. The blessing is to be able to turn from our wickedness. We're not being called simply to believe a new religion. We're, calling to, we're being called to repent and to follow after this Jesus who is the supreme, who is the one and only, the holy and righteous one, the author of life, the only one by which we can be saved. And when you, when you make even those statements, it's offensive. It's going to offend. And certainly all of us had to go through that experience when we came to know Christ of being offended by the reality that we are hopeless without Jesus. And especially as men who like to fix things and like to take care of things and can get things done. To have to come to the surrender, that point of surrender when you say, I can't do it. I can't fix this. I can't change my heart. It's offensive. Well, in this offense, we see now in uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 22, that the gospel will be challenged. The gospel will be challenged. And uh, the context here is the, the Sadducees and the religious leaders, the, the Sanhedrin, they really have a, a problem with what's going on. They arrest Peter and John. It's too late in the day to deal with anything, so they stick them in prison overnight and uh, realize now these guys have gone from everybody finds favor with them at the end of chapter 2, and now they're in prison. And what have they done for uh, being in prison? They have, they have healed a guy who's been lame for 40, uh, for 40 years, and, they have, um, uh, and then they've gotten up and they've preached this good news. That's all they've done. And now they're sitting in prison for the night. And they're brought out the next day, and they're brought probably to the Sanhedrin. And so they're there standing, you know, kind of in this half circle thing, having to face all of the religious rulers of that day, standing in the very place Jesus had stood just a few weeks before. And I wonder if they're wondering, is this it? <laughs> I mean, I'm in the same place as Jesus right now. Is, is this thing going to be over? And what we see here played out as the gospel is challenged is, first of all, that there was one power that these men were relying upon. One power, seen verses 1 through 8. And this kind of leads back into what Sandy talked about a couple weeks ago when he, when he preached to us uh, from chapter 2 on the gift of the Holy Spirit. Look what it says in, in the beginning of verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak. Later on, you see that, that the Sanhedrin was astonished because these were uneducated common men. I just want to point that out to all of us this morning. Uneducated common men, and then you see the brilliance of what Peter says. And, and this is the same Peter who had a hard time not just saying stupid stuff all through the Gospels. It's the same guy. And the eloquence with which he preached on the day of Pentecost, and the eloquence of this sermon before the Sanhedrin, thinking that their lives are being that their, their lives are probably over. The eloquence is astounding. This is, this is amazing stuff. This is the power of the Holy Spirit. Brothers, that same power is in you right now. And we need to recognize that. The, the power of the Holy Spirit that exists in you right now is a power that supersedes any power on the face of this earth. What, what you have in you, what I have in me by the grace of God is amazing, amazing power. 
And these men do not have to fear. And they don't fear because they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And then we go on to see in verses 8b through 14 that there is one name. There is one name. You know, I've noticed something, maybe you've noticed this too, that, uh, that the term Christian or, or the word faith, certainly the word religion, I, I really think has, has lost any meaning that's helpful to us as followers of Christ. Um, in fact, when I, when I teach students, college students or high school students, I, I, I avoid using the word Christian, that we're Christians. Or, and I avoid it because that term right now in, in America and in the world doesn't mean what we mean by it. Now, when the believers at Antioch were first called Christians, little Christs, it meant something very significant. These people are little Christ. They're followers of this person, Jesus. Unfortunately, what that word means now is that it's a world religion that has some, some kind of general beliefs about the existence of God and the existence of Jesus. And because of the hypocrisy and just the, the damage that has been done to the, to the word Christian. There's a lot of people, you know, you, you do take a poll in the United States right now and be, you'd be overwhelmed by the percentage of the people in the United States who, are, who, are, uh, who would say they are Christians. Then you, then you pull those exact same group of people and ask them, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And you won't get the same number. <laughs> so the term is unhelpful. It's not helpful anymore. Because other people don't realize that when, what we're saying as is, is the term Christian is Christ follower. So I've, I've tended to use the, the phrase followers of Jesus. That's the phrase I use constantly with students. Because that's who we are. We're not, we're not a world religion. We're not just part of the, the scheme of, of Islam and Judaism and Hinduism and Buddhism and, and, you know, and agnostics, atheists, Christians. That's not... That's, we're not in that span. That's not what things are. We're followers of Jesus. And for us, faith doesn't simply mean I try to believe something that you may not believe. Faith for us is, is being, as it says in Hebrews, sure of things that we have not seen. Confident of the promises God has given. Knowing that they are found in Scripture and that Jesus has affirmed these things. Being a follower of Jesus is really the issue. And so, right before the Sanhedrin, Peter is saying, listen, there is one name, and this, this name alone is the one that saves. And, and, and we're, we're going to follow Jesus no matter what. And as the gospel is being challenged in this place, it's also being challenged, starting all over in America, the, the challenge is becoming greater and greater um, I, I heard about just a couple weeks ago some concern that some campus ministries were going to be kicked off the campus, some Christian campus ministries were going to be kicked off the campus of, of uh, Vanderbilt. Um, and uh, this person was extremely concerned that that was going to be a disaster. Honestly, brothers, I wasn't that concerned about it. Because <laughs> as we're going to see a little bit, 
God's plan marches on. But sometimes when we're trying to fit in with culture, we do things that we, that we shouldn't do. We, we, we avoid the name. We avoid using the name. And last week I was, uh, I was at the UT Georgia game, and I was really cheering for UT. It was really hard because I'm a Florida fan, but I really needed them to beat Georgia, and they really let me down. <laughs> and, uh, and the guy who did the opening prayer is a guy that I know and I love and I respect, and I don't know the whole story behind it, but when I get a chance to talk to him, I'm going to talk to him. Um, he's a believer. He's a follower of Jesus. And he, gave, he was asked to give the opening prayer. And again, I, I, I don't know why, and, I, and maybe I need to know why before I say anything. But when he closed his prayer, he should have said in the name of Jesus, not to be offensive, not to make a point, but because that's how we pray. Our prayers are only accepted in the name of Jesus. If I've ever asked in a public context to, to not use the name of Jesus, I just kindly decline and say, well, then you might want to get someone else. Because I can't, I can't do that. I don't, what's the point? What's the point of me speaking <laughs> if I can't use the name of Jesus? That's, that's what I'm about. That's who we are. Um, and so I'm hoping to get the chance to say to this brother, hey, maybe you just... Maybe you got excited <laughs> about the opportunity. I don't know, but you got to use the name of Jesus when you pray. I want you to, uh, to notice one thing before we leave these, 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 14, or these uh, verses 8 through 14. I just want you to notice what it says at the end of verse 13. In fact, verse 13, man, that, what a, that's a great memory verse right there. Chapter 4, verse 13, now when they, the, they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and common men, they were astonished. And listen to this phrase right here. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Oh, isn't that what we want when we walk out of here today? That people around us would recognize that we had been with Jesus. That's what I want in my life. That my time with the Lord in the morning, that, that this new life would be exposed, that that people would recognize that I had been with Jesus. Uh, what, a, what a great testimony for those men. Well, then the last section of verses, verses 15 through 22, I, I labeled as one authority. One authority. Because now being challenged by the Sanhedrin not to speak anymore, being told, hey, listen, uh, we, can't, we can't, I want you to notice a couple things. I think Stott pointed this out in the book. Two things to notice. One, they, they didn't argue against the miracle. In fact, they make the point, well, we can't, we can't argue against the miracle. What do we do? I mean, the, the guy is healed. Another thing they didn't argue against, they didn't argue against the resurrection of Jesus. Notice that? They just want them to stop speaking about Jesus, but they don't argue against, oh, come on, you, Jesus did not raise from the dead. At no point do they argue that. I believe that's because everybody in Jerusalem knew this Jesus had been, they had heard about it. I mean, he had, he had been witnessed, the resurrected Jesus had been, had been seen by hundreds of people. And so there was no argument there about that. Okay, one authority. We're taught to respect authority, be good citizens, we're, we're good southerners. You know, you want to you do the right thing. And yet you see very clearly what we're being told in these verses is that we have, we have one master. We have one person to answer to. 
And that's what Peter and, and, and John say. They say to, to, the, to the Sanhedrin, hey, you guys be the judge. This is a great, what a great thing to say to a bunch of people who are following God, who are, say you're following God. Hey, you be the judge. Do we listen to you guys or do we follow God? Let us know. <laughs> we, we, can't, we can't stop talking about what we've seen and heard. So, so you, guys, you guys decide that. They have, they have one authority in their lives and they're going to follow that authority reminds me of, of even in my, in my parenting with my kids. Every once in a while, you know, we're in a generation now. Those of you who are older, uh, older dads, uh, guys that my, are my dad's age, I think there was one thing you did right. You know, there's a lot of things in this, in this culture that keeps telling you, well, you should have communicated better. And did, there's one thing you guys did great. You really taught the idea of authority. And my generation as dads, we're having a hard time with that. We want to be buddies so badly with our kids that we're forgetting we're not really buddies, we're dads. And that's our role. That's what we need to do. And uh, in, in, in attempting to, to converse with my, my son sometimes, I'll get this response where they're kind of, they're kind of uh, um, you know, my parenting is on trial by them, right? And I finally concluded a few times, calmly, not in anger. I've just said, I've just said son, you, you might be right. Your accusation might be right. But here's the deal. I don't answer to you regarding my parenting. I don't. I answer to one authority. I answer to God. Now, if I'm wrong, God's going to deal with me. And I said, and I've even said sometimes, I don't think they've appreciated this, but I found it humorous. I've said, you know, and if you've got an issue with my parenting, you really should go talk to my boss about it. <laughs> Let him know what's wrong with the way I'm, with the way I'm being a dad. We have, we have, brothers, one authority. You know, it's the, it's the Martin Luther and the Reformation saying, hey, listen, I want to be respectful to you, this Roman Catholic Church. I want to respect you. I, I'm not trying to be a rebel. But I can't deny what I see in God's word. And God is my authority. And so here's where I stand. I can't do anything else. And that's the authority that we walk out of here with. One power, one name. One authority. The gospel is going to be challenged, whether it's challenged for your life, uh, in your life today or tomorrow or next week or next month. It's important to, to follow this pattern of you have a power in you that supersedes anything. The one name of Jesus is the name that we bank on. That's what everything is about. And we have an authority, and it's God, and we answer only to him. That's whom we have to decide whether or not we're going to obey not the people around us. And then lastly, verses 23 through 31, the gospel will prevail. The gospel will prevail. So these guys face persecution. The church is starting to face opposition. And what do they do? They have a prayer meeting. And their prayer is astounding. It's a great model for us. In fact, it's one of those things that you want to hold on to and say, I'm going to shape my prayers around this deal right here. First of all, we see in verses 23 through 28, there is the reminder. The reminder. What they're doing is they're reminding themselves that God is sovereign, that God is in control. He is the creator. He is the author of life. He is the sovereign God. They quote Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is an incredible psalm. It's a messianic psalm. And basically, the psalm, you know, using some of the phrases, they say, why, why do the nations rage? Why do kings set themselves up against Jesus, against God's Son? 
Are they crazy? Are they stupid? And then it says, it goes on in Psalm 2, that God looks down from heaven at all these schemes and plans by governments, and he laughs. That's what it says in Psalm 2. He laughs. Really? Really, you're going you're gonna to go against my son Jesus? Because I'm going to accomplish what I need to accomplish. Because I'm the author of history. I'm marching on a redemption plan and nothing can stop me. And they remind themselves in their prayers, God, we know that you're doing this. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to be in, uh, in Ukraine uh, on a mission trip. And uh, some of you have been involved with Hope to People in Ukraine. And, uh, and this incredible mission organization coming out of there. And we actually went and did work at a, at a camp. We were holding this youth camp, and this youth camp was being held in this facility that was, uh, was, was built um, to, to, uh, as a vacation area for Soviet officials, like high-ranking Soviet officials, kind of their vacation dacas, you know. Their thing. And uh, so we're there. In this camp, and as I'm walking around them, I mean, all of us here, we, we remember, don't we? We remember when the greatest threat to, you know, the world was the Soviet power, and the greatest threat to the gospel was the Soviet atheism and its oppression on people. And we were so concerned. We had prayer meetings. Oh Lord, please open up the Iron Curtain. Please let the gospel go through. What you know? Bring this down. We've got to get the gospel in there. We've got to get the gospel in there. And as I'm walking around that camp. About eight years ago, I'm thinking, how oh, the Lord was looking down from heaven and laughing. I think he was saying, no, church, you know what? I need the Soviets to build me some more Christian camps first. Because <laughs> the whole thing was paid for by Soviet money. Hope to People's Headquarters was a school that was built for Soviet military officials' kids. <laughs> It was paid for by Soviet money, the headquarters for Hope to People. God looking down and saying, oh, I've got a plan. I need them to, I need them to finish my work first. And so they remind themselves in this prayer. And then there's the request, verses 29 through 30. And here's the part that really goes against our American culture. Because they don't pray for protection. They don't pray for relief. They say, hey, Lord, consider, hey, look at, look at what's happening. And then they pray for boldness. And they pray for more miracles and signs because what they're praying for is evangelism. What they want is the gospel to go out. They're not looking for comfort. They're not looking for ease. They're not looking to stop being thrown in prison. They're saying, make us... Hey, Lord, notice things are getting a little rough. So what I need you to do is make me more bold. Show yourself more powerful. Brothers, that's what we've got to pray. We've got to stop praying for comfort. We've got to stop praying simply for protection. And we've got to start praying for the gospel to go forward, for the gospel to prevail, for boldness. One of the things I've been realizing in my prayers a lot is trying to, uh, trying to think of the why. So I ask God, I'm asking God for this. Now I go one step further. Todd, why are you asking God for this? If God grants you this, this request you made, 
that will help you do what for him? Lord, please give me a safe trip to the UT-Georgia game so that, so that what? What gospel reason, what, what kingdom reason, what evangelistic reason? Do, and there are, there might be some. So I, I was going there to meet with students, two PC students, and encourage them in their, in their walk with Christ. So, Lord, I'd like to get there. <laughs> but I think we need, to, we need to think about the why of our prayers, and that will lead us to, to pray like this. So there's the reminder, there's the request, and finally, this morning, brothers, there's the response. What, a, what an awesome response. It says, when they had prayed, the place where they were gathered together was shaken. It shook. The, God made his presence known. He gave his own amen to the prayer. He said, I'm with you. I'm with you. And they were, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. That power. They were reminded of that power. And it was told, God answered their prayers. They were given courage to speak with boldness. It was awesome. Brothers, the mission that we have this morning when we walk out of here is the same mission Peter and John had when they walked up to the temple that day. And the Holy Spirit that filled Peter and John that, that morning, that filled Peter and John the next day before the Sanhedrin, that filled, Peter, that filled the, the followers of Jesus in that prayer, that same Spirit is with you as you walk out of here today. And the victory of the gospel going forward, no matter what, is as secure today as it was that day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you and praise you that you are a God of history, that you are the creator, that you are marching forward in your redemptive plan, that you cannot be stopped, and that you have supplied us with your Holy Spirit, power straight from heaven, that exist in us right now. And Heavenly Father, we would ask you that, that people would know today, people would know that we have been with Jesus. And we walk out of here, we walk out of here, you would give us strength to speak with boldness. That you would give us courage to live as followers of Jesus. That you would help us to, with joy, follow you on this redemptive march. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.